millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should not ask for a world with no risk whatsoever, because taking risk makes our lives better. Our show is about fixes. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, I'm right. and you are wrong. You're wrong. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. How, How do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? By making the world a safer place, we could be making things more dangerous. Yeah, anti-lock brakes don't actually reduce car accidents. Football helmets sometimes make football more dangerous. And fighting forest fires can lead to bigger, more intense disasters later. Today, we look at risk and why stability is destabilizing. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our guest is journalist Greg Ipp. Chief Economics Commentator at the Wall Street Journal. His latest book is Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. So Greg is joining us via Skype from Washington. Welcome, Greg. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. So um, in your book, you lead off with an anecdote about driving on a French highway and, and spotting a particular sign that really resonated with you. Can, can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was on my honeymoon. The sign said, speed makes everything worse. It really made me think because it basically said the faster you go, the more damaging your accident. It also means that if you are trying to leave a cushion between you and the next car, the faster you're going, the faster you use that uh, cushion up. And it was a little reminder to me about how easily we take our safety for granted, whether it's driving a car or actually operating um, a financial strategy if you're the, one of the world's biggest banks, is that unless you actually have an accident, you're probably going to develop a, a false sense of your own safety. So so a key point in your book, Greg, is that, w- that we adapt to our environment, that if surroundings seem safer, then we take on more risk, right? Well, absolutely. And let me give you a couple of examples. We've all heard about the Titanic accident, right? And everybody knows, oh, that they thought their ship was unsinkable, so they sailed too fast. And that was definitely part of it. But what's interesting from the history of shipping in the North Atlantic is that there hadn't actually been a recorded instance in prior decades of a ship, of a modern ship being sunk by an iceberg because ships were pretty well built. And so it wasn't just that the Titanic was special. It was generally thought that modern ships were special. They just didn't sink by hitting icebergs. So in some sense, the complacency of the Titanic crew wasn't specific just to their technology. It was specific to a mindset of the time. Now, fast forward 100 years to our financial crisis and something similar was going on. Before the crisis happened, we had had a 25-year period in this country that became known as the Great Moderation. Low inflation, low unemployment, just a few mild recessions, no serious crises. And it was the pervasiveness of that uh, tranquility in the economy that encouraged 
everybody to take on more risk. So was this the financial equivalent of driving too fast? There was a bit of that. I think it was perhaps more the financial equivalent of just thinking that the 100-year flood wasn't going to come along. When I was re- uh, researching this story, I interviewed a lot of people, you know, like Paul Volcker, who was the Federal Reserve Chairman in the 1970s and the 1980s. And Volcker used to worry about exactly this. If we make everything safer, are people going to take more risk? The irony here is, of course, Volcker himself had a lot to do with exactly that. He uh, initiated the year of the bailouts in 1982 when banks were in trouble because they had lent too much money to Mexico, or 1984 with the failure. But, you know, Volcker didn't just sort of sit on his uh, laurels. He actually did sit out to try and make the banks safer by um, subjecting them to more regulation. I don't think what he realized, though, is that in making one part of the financial system safer, the risk just migrated to other places that we eventually came to call shadow banks these uh, lesser regulated hedge funds and so forth. So in some sense, we thought we were safer because the banks, which were the things we could see, were safer. But in fact, the risks were growing in places that we couldn't see. So if we actually had a system that allowed banks to fail a little more regularly and weren't so quick to rush in and and save them, we might keep the risk where we can keep an eye on it better and, and not force that kind of migration? Exactly. I mean, that's kind of the uh, counterintuitive part here is if you actually occasionally let banks fail, it's a reminder to everybody, the lenders, the bankers, the regulators, that there is no promise of perfection. And we do let very small banks fail from time to time, but we've never allowed a sizable bank to fail. We should try and have a system that allows banks, even large banks, to fail as a reminder to people that they need to sort of always be aware of the presence of that risk. Now, in, in, as a way to help people understand this, in your book, you talk about some analogous situations and other aspects of, of life, um, the example of anti-lock breaks. Explain how that works. In the 1970s, there was a famous economist named Sam Peltzman who did some research that seemed to show that with safety belts, drivers drove faster. And so that while the driver was better protected in an accident, he hit more pedestrians. And so the actual number of highway deaths didn't go down. Well, that caused a lot of controversy, and people have studied it quite closely. And the conclusion is that safety belts do on net reduce deaths, although not by as much as the original engineers thought. However, when anti-lock brakes came along, uh, all sorts of research has found that the number of accidents doesn't change when people have anti-lock brakes. And why is that? Well, there have been a number of explanations, but the best we can come up with is that people, when they have these anti-lock brakes, they seem to drive differently. They seem to drive faster, They drive, especially in wet conditions when the brakes are supposed to help them more. Uh, they might leave less space in front of them, uh, so there's less uh, cushion, so they might have more rear-end accidents. Well, that raises the question, why do we get this with anti-lock brakes but not with safety belts? I think the reason why is that with safety belts, people don't really know they're wearing them, and so it doesn't change their behavior. But with anti-lock brakes um, and with other things like uh, snow tires and even driver's education, it actually encourages the driver to believe they can now drive differently and perhaps more aggressively. Yeah, but we've had a lot of safety innovations in cars and trucks, and the number of accidents, or at least fatal accidents, has gone down a lot, hasn't it? Yes, it has. It has. That is absolutely true. In fact, all aspects of human life are safer. I would not contest that at all. So you're not you're not arguing against safety improvements. I am absolutely not arguing against safety. In case there's any doubts here, I use a safety belt. My kids all use safety belts. (laughs) My car has anti-lock brakes and electronic stability control, all that good stuff. But what's interesting, and you've actually seen the accident rate declining for the last 100 years. It didn't start declining when we brought in all these federal rules about safety in the 1960s. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that over time, our appetites for risk changes 
that as our society becomes more affluent, one of the things we want to do with our affluence is to spend more on safety. What this suggests is that while regulation has had some positive effect, a lot of the improvement we've seen in fatality rates probably would have occurred anyway, just as people adjusted their own appetites for risk. So you're saying that people are treating their car less as a sort of a daredevil entertainment system and <laughs> and more as a a pragmatic part of daily life that they don't want to have end prematurely. Oh, sure. You know, and this is actually something that you see in all aspects of life. I mean, we society spend a lot more on health care and so on. We, we spend a lot more re- researching drugs. Greg, I want to talk about football helmets, because that's a really provocative thought, that football helmets are a leading cause of concussions. You know, when football was first played in the 1800s, they didn't wear helmets. And people hit themselves pretty hard, and, and players would occasionally be killed. Players started wearing these soft leather caps to protect their ears. Then in the 40s, they introduced hard helmets. And one of the things that happened is that once these players had these very strong head protections, they learned they could hit each other harder with their heads. And coaches would actually teach the players to spear each other because the head could now be used as a weapon. What happened after that is that the incidence of broken necks and spinal injuries started to go up because a spearing play tends to put all this pressure on the player's spine and results in different sorts of injuries. But we still have a concussion problem. And one of the reasons is because the helmets are so good these days that a lot of players feel very safe hitting each other hard and sustaining these injuries. And remember, a concussion is not inherent immediately when it happens. It's a cumulative thing. One of the best bits of evidence on this front, it was a uh, medical researcher at the University of New Hampshire. And he had 25 players, college players, practicing without helmets. And then he had them put their helmets on, and then he went back to play the game. And when he compared these players with 25 regular players who had always practiced with their helmets on, he found that the ones who had had some practice without the helmets sustained fewer head impacts. And it appears to be that just a few minutes of practicing without the helmet taught the player to protect his head better. So the lesson here is that by uh, spending some of your time exposed to more risk, you can learn safer behaviors overall. Is there is there an analogy with that to the financial world? I think there is. I mean, uh, let's just look at what's been uh, racking the markets these days. It's all these worries about China. And I'll tell you one thing about the Chinese. They really love the idea of stability. They want stable politics, stable growth, stable currencies. And But they're also trying to become a market economy. And frankly, market economies aren't very stable. Companies go bankrupt, you know. Stock prices and currencies fluctuate a lot. And so one of the reasons there's been so much indigestion in the markets is that the Chinese are grappling with market volatility that they've never had before. And it turns out that a lot of companies have borrowed a lot of money based on the assumption that the economy would always be this calm, stable creature. And that's just not a good expectation to have. And so what they're trying to do is introduce volatility initially in the currency. And even though that's giving conniptions to people on Wall Street, in the long run, it's probably a good thing because uh, investors and companies and banks that realize that currencies both go up and down, sometimes a lot and sometimes without any warning, are less likely to take on big risky positions believing that's the case. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Our guest is journalist Greg Ipp, chief economics commentator of the Wall Street Journal. Let's look at how the U.S. and other countries are trying to reduce financial risk, especially in the years since 2008 and our virtual catastrophe. Is the Dodd-Frank legislation, for instance, is, is that working? That was aimed at making banks safer. Well, I would say the most important bit of legislation we've done actually isn't Dodd-Frank specifically. It's an agreement between all the leading countries of the world to make banks hold more capital. And the reason why is that I compare a bank having more capital to basically that increased space between you and the next car on the highway. It means that if something goes wrong, if the trader takes on too much risk, that shareholder's equity is a loss-absorbing buffer that protects you from a lot of mistakes you didn't anticipate coming along. You know, we should not ask for a world with no risk whatsoever because taking risk makes our lives better. Frankly, I don't bungee jump, but some people do, and I'm not going to tell them not to do it because they like the thrill. You know, letting our kids explore at an early age makes them more independent, even though there's always a possibility they'll be hurt. Uh, So a little bit of risk is a good thing, and the same thing is true of our economies. You have to enable some people to borrow money and perhaps lose everything in the process in order to start the next Starbucks or the next Amazon And frankly, we have to allow banks to be able to lend that money and sometimes fail in the process. And that means that at some point, there's a little bit of risk, however small, that that, those lenders will get into trouble and cause a crisis. And I worry a little bit. We've been so worried about another crisis that we have pushed so many rules onto banks and other lenders that it's actually held back risk taking. And do you think sometimes when people are heavily regulated, they're surrounded by complex rules, that they sometimes just work to the rule? I mean, as long as they're in compliance, they kind of think their responsibility is done and perhaps they don't work as hard to make their own independent assessments of risk? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of that true. I mean, we see this in airplane cockpits, ironically. Uh, So airplanes are very automated now. They have autopilot, they have uh, auto throttle. Uh, So a lot for the pilots to start to trust the computer. And then when something unusual happens, their, um, their reflexes have been dulled and they don't know how to react. So, yeah, it is possible that if people take too much trust in the idea that everything is taken care of, that they will let their guard down. Now, we're a solution show. And before we get to your solutions, I, I just want to say I like the dedication at the end of your book, which is to your wife, Nancy, yeah. who you say lives to protect the family from harm. That's why we drive more slowly in bad weather, your family at least, uh, wear helmets yeah. on the ski slope and check the locks each night. So you're certainly yeah. not arguing against safety. Absolutely not. What I'm arguing there for is know your own risk appetite. Think about what your tolerance is. You know, I used to ski in a snowboard without a helmet. And my wife, you know, would tell me, you've got to start wearing a helmet. You've got to teach the kids the lesson. And I was very grumpy and curmudgeonly about this. And finally, I agreed to wear a helmet. Well, the first day I wore a helmet, I went snowboarding and wham, I went over and <laughs> hit my head really hard. And now, much as I love to say this proved that I got sloppy because I was wearing a helmet, I have to admit that's actually not really true. I just caught an edge of the snow. <laughs> but there is research. I mean, there was 
was a famous study at Sugarbush that skiers sustained as many injuries wearing helmets um, uh, as as they did without helmets because they wound up skiing faster. Isn't that right? I guess what I'm trying to say here is that thanks to my wife, my appetite for risk on the slopes has changed now, and neither I nor my children will ski or snowboard without helmets. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I can't imagine. I'm a mountain biker, and, and the idea of being on a mountain bike without a helmet is actually scary to me. But, Greg, one of the things in your book that really struck me was you talk about levees and you talk about floodplains and why our, our attempts to corral rivers to make a community safer can, in the long run, make it less safe. Can you explain that? In the case of levees, what we do know from 200 years of experience is that levees are designed to enable us to like build homes and businesses and farms on the floodplain where we couldn't before. And that naturally means that when the levee fails, and levees almost invariably do eventually fail or get overtopped, more damage is caused. If we actually just move the levees back and turn those floodplains into green space for parks, for example, or for farms that aren't used very often, well, that's actually pretty foolproof. You know, uh, floodplains don't fail. If you just don't put people there, things will be okay. And in some towns, for example, that have been repeatedly flooded by the upper Mississippi or Missouri have literally moved their downtowns away from the river. And the Dutch are doing something similar. Now, this is a country that's 60% below uh, sea level. So if their big levees failed, you can imagine what a catastrophe that is. But they also have several major river systems running through the country. And way back in the 50s, thousands of people died when high tides and flooding caused those uh, uh, rivers to overtop their levees. So what they have taken on is a new philosophy called room for the river, where they're actually tearing down levees or dikes, as they call them, so that the rivers, when they flood, they actually have a place to go. And that place is usually lightly populated farmland, which protects the more heavily populated cities. Greg, just let let me ask you one more question. What is the fundamental point that you're making here? What do you want people to take away from reading this book or, or listening to this interview? Life is about risk. Many positive things happen from taking risks. And we should not let the pendulum swing all the way to the other side, which is to try and eliminate all risk from our lives. Not only will it probably not work because it will come back in a different way, but even if it did work, it will take a lot of nice things out of our lives. So we're a show about solutions, and, and you've given us a, a good overview of, of different ways to think about risk. What else can we do in the financial world to, um, to help reduce the chance of a real you know, giant systemic kind of problem like we've seen uh, in 2008 and other times? I think memory is pretty important. You know, I'm a big uh, believer that history is very useful. I think people who go into banking and finance these days should sit down and read some of the history, read some of the first-person accounts of times that failed. You know, it's an old saying on Wall Street. It's a young person's game because uh, only young people have the absence of memory that enabled them to take the risks of have blown up so often in the past. <laughs> listen to the old, oh, listen to the old folks. When you're de- designing risk management systems, don't just look at the last three years of history. Look at the last 30 years of history. Listen to the old folks. I like that. Um, and l- learn the lessons of history. Greg Ipp, economics commentator at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. Hey, Jim, we don't just make great shows. We also have a pretty good website that has a lot of information about what we're up to and also has all of the, I think, 36 or 37 shows we've recorded so far. How do we fix it.me? Yeah, and the website's a good resource for if you want any more information about the show, you can send us a message. We love to hear ideas. We love comments. And of course, if you're 
accessing the show through iTunes, please rate us and, and leave a comment if you like what you hear. And if it's difficult to do that, then go to our website. There's a pretty easy to follow guide. In one part of the interview, Jim, we talked about Dodd-Frank, which is this gargantuan piece of legislation around trying to prevent another 2008 financial crisis. And it raises the question of too many rules, writing a law that is supposed to work for every possible eventuality. Yeah, and I think he makes a very good case that this excess of rules can can backfire sometimes. And, you know, in my work, for the book I'm working on about big disasters, you often see that when people work in an environment of very strict rules, they kind of turn their brain off. You know, we're just we're following the rules, so um, we don't really have to think very much about the bigger risk. And yeah, I, yeah, give us an example of that. Well, one example is um, he mentioned Titanic. You know, everybody thinks they didn't have enough lifeboats on the Titanic because they were arrogantly assumed the boat couldn't sink. That wasn't it. There was a regulation. They were in they were in compliance with the regulation that a ship needed lifeboats for roughly half its passengers. Turns out nobody carried enough uh, lifeboats back in those days. Yeah. And and then the other thing with regard to the 2008 financial crisis was a lot of really smart people, people who've studied risk, have, have spent their whole lives dealing with the financial system. They didn't anticipate right. and the, you see the this, disaster. Right. And you see this in all kinds of disasters. Uh, after the fact, it looks so obvious. And we assume that the people who missed the disaster, whether the ones who launching the space shuttle on a cold morning or whatever it might be, we assume that they missed it because they're basically bad people. You know, they were greedy. They were they were trying to they were they were being reckless about the risk. So I have a lot of friends, you know, the top economists may not have seen the, uh, the the financial crisis coming, but I have a lot of friends. They're sure they know who's at fault. And yeah. They, you know what I mean? And they totally confidently assume that all these people saw it coming and just arrogantly didn't do anything about it. Yeah, you know, the way that Bernie Sanders has talked about the financial crisis, I don't think is doing anybody any favors because right. he, he blames one group of people. He blames greedy bankers on Wall Street for all the problems that have happened. And this situation is not that simple. It, it's always fun to have somebody to blame. It always feels great. It doesn't do much to prevent the next disaster. And what it also does is it feeds your own personal arrogance. You think, oh, well, if I was in that situation, of course I would see the problem coming. So that makes you less safe in your world because you assume that because you're virtuous, you're not going to get caught in that kind of trap. And I think the biggest takeaway for me is everybody needs to be a little more, not fearful because, you know, we need risk, but but willing to open your mind up to what you don't know, what you don't understand. There's this tension between risk and safety. They're both very real. We have to live with both of them. We can't be paralyzed with fear all the time. What I think this raises is the nobility of compromise. Compromise is something that we just don't seem to be comfortable talking about at the moment. It's out of fashion, and yet it's so vital to avoiding disasters in the future. So so what do you mean? Like compromise in what area? Well, compromise in understanding that we have a balance of interests, that it's not just we, we can't, for instance reform Wall Street tomorrow, break up the banks and expect there to be no financial risk in the future. Yeah, as somebody who's pursued a lot of risky sports, I used to be a rock climber and I go mountain biking and stuff. Risk is important. I think humans need risk in their, or some do, in their personal lives. And I think that in the business world, if we try too hard to eliminate risk, we're squeezing one end of a balloon. It's going to have an effect at the other end. We never know for sure what that's going to be. Usually I just think it means 
a little less, the, the economy is going to be a little less dynamic. It's not going to grow as fast. And as always, that means that the people at the bottom are going are gonna to suffer. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. I'm Jim Meggs. Our audio engineer is Denise Barbarita here at Mono Lisa Studios in beautiful uptown Manhattan. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and our website is howdowefixit.me. Go there for more information about our shows and episodes. The show is produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. You want to say thanks for joining us? Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey. <laughs>